Thank you, never get rid of me. Let all the others fight and fuss. Whatever happens, we've got ours. We're closer than pages that stick in a book. We're closer than ripples that play in a brook. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Try It You Like It, the podcast where we never, ever have any technical problems. Crickets. <laughs> I'm Joseph Finn, and with me tonight, we have my co-hosts. We've got Randy. Hi, everyone. And we've got Amy. Hello. And tonight, uh, before we get started, we'd just like to all congratulate Randy on his Red Sox uh, winning the World Series. Woo! Yeah. So, so Randy, I assume you're buying a duck boat. <laughs> Last time I was in Boston, which was this summer, went on a duck tour, and the river, the current was too strong, so we couldn't go on the river, and I felt cheated. Aww. Yep. I did love that the beat, that the Red Sox won, even though they had one former White Sox and one former Cub on there. <laughs> so for the life of me and now, I can't remember who the hell the former Cub was. Let's, uh, let's get into what we're to be talking about this week. Uh, I chose the subject this time around, and I decided to go with clones. Uh, we're going to be talking the book first, and Amy, you chose the book, so why don't you tell us about it a bit? Okay, the book we're discussing is called The Originals um, by Cat Patrick. And the tagline is three girls, one life. Um, your setup is that you have these three young women who are, what are they, 16, 17 in the book? Uh, I believe they say 16 going on 17. 17. 17 year old daughters, what it says right here on the jacket flap. And the writer has given them the not at all symbolic name of Best as their surname. And um, the. Three girls used to live as triplets with their mother, but um, due to some complications that we'll talk about later in the plot, they now actually live as just one girl um, named Elizabeth, um, but the three girls identify as Lizzie, Ella, and Betsy, uh, and one of them goes to school in the morning, they swap out at lunch, the other one goes to school in the afternoon. And then the third one work, goes to community class colleges at night and um, has a job. And so no one in the outside world, no one outside the family realizes that that's not one, just one girl. And the reason that they are so identical is because they're not triplets. They're actually clones. Um, the, the main... Um, I should go ask the kid downstairs that's going to take the SAT soon. All right. So, um, anyway, conflict ah, ah. Um, occurs when the two girls that attend high school, um, Lizzie and Ella, both come home having met boys at school in which they're interested and they want to date. But since they you know, are presented to the world, there's only one person there's only one you know they can only there can only be one boyfriend for the composite girl that is elizabeth uh and what was it was it a coin toss remembering remembering that right i think it was wasn't it Uh, i don't think it's a coin toss i think the mother just chooses did she just choose yeah that's how i remember yeah okay so ella gets to date 
Mr. Douchebag Jock. And our first person heroine, Lizzie, doesn't get to date sensitive cute boy, Sean. Um, that makes it sound very simplistic, that it's just about, oh, mom, I want to date, when really what it is, is that these three, that this, that's the tipping point for these girls realizing um, that the situation they're in, which they've been in since they were nine years old, is untenable, that, you know, they are now of an age where they each want different things in life, they have different personalities and different strengths academically and different tastes in music and clothes and things like that and they each want to be their own person and it's really just the the dating that brings that issue the dating is sort of the uh, MacGuffin in a way that brings that issue to the forefront um and then the rest of the story is kind of how that plays out uh these three young girls starting to rebel against the setup that they've not questioned since they were nine. Uh, and, and you do have the development of Ella's relationship with her boyfriend um, and, you know, Lizzie's development, de the developments between Lizzie and Sean. Uh, and then there's some plot things that kind of bring the whole situation to a, uh, to a boiling point and something has to be resolved. And then you get, you know, you get a, you get like not an epilogue, but the story ends. So what'd you guys think of it? Uh, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I liked that we weren't having one of those novels where you have what are essentially three main characters. Um, jumping back and forth between uh, viewpoints we're basically seeing it uh through the uh through the eyes of betsy no lizzie lizzie, uh, lizzie excuse me uh betsy is the one who goes to night school and has a job yes. at night uh lizzie is the one who gets the, who starts off in the morning shift gets switch, switched over to the afternoon shift at school so i'd like that we had one viewpoint uh that we could concentrate on um the slight problem with that is that I think Betsy gets pushed a little to the side. A in terms, little. yes, I would say a little. She gets a little I, more later. Uh, not much. Not Go much. Ahead, though. Go ahead. But she does get pushed off to the side. Um, so we do get uh, a little more of uh, Ella. Ella. Yes. Ella morning, Lizzie afternoon, Betsy in the evening. Okay, triplets, clones. <laughs> Anywho, we do get more of Ella, mostly because she's the other one uh, who decides she wants a boyfriend. Betsy takes herself out of the equation for that. And it's interesting seeing this one viewpoint, and we're, and we're just focused on that. Um, I like the mystery at the center of it. I think it's interesting that uh, it's not as simple as... It first seems, but it doesn't try to go too complex. There's no, you know, huge government conspiracy without spoiling anything. There is a there is a, a a hidden secret there, but it's not something crazy. It's something that's actually weirdly reasonable when you get to it. Well, I mean, my big problem with any kind of conspiracy theory is what's the old Mark Twain quote that the only way what is it the only way three people can keep a secret is if two of them are dead. Yes. 
Um, and, and that's usually my problem with conspiracy theories is really you think everyone would be successful at, at hiding this and lying and keeping a secret? Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just being asked to believe that the mother has kept the secret that she has and that the girls, you know, entrusting their mother have, you know, shared in that secret. I found that believable. Yes. I do have one small problem with uh, the keeping of the secret in terms of um, it seemed to, to strain things a little bit that in terms of medical records and whatnot, I mean, was the mother doing all of their medical medical care? Probably. I mean, she was a doctor. Yes, but she's not a dentist. She's not, not an ophthalmologist. Well, they didn't have bad vision, did they? No, but you, you would need to have eye checks of some kind at some point. Well, you can administer an eye exam without being an ophthalmologist. Yeah, but what if one of them... Anyway, but leaving aside that... If, They're clones! They're all going to have the same eyes! Not being a dentist would be a more severe issue. So I was a little skeptical about that. Well, you know, they get six months checkups, and you just rotate them out, so every girl sees a dentist every 18 months. Mm. And let's hope they don't need braces. Okay, fair enough. So what do you think, Randy? Well, there's this is quite clearly a book for young adults. It would definitely fall under YA. And there's a lot of young adult literature that when you read it as an adult, uh, you can appreciate it differently, like from a different perspective and as well as probably a lot of subtleties within the books. Sadly, this was not one of those books mm-hmm. for me. No, no. I mean, to me, I mean, when I when I chose this book, I, I think, you know, I said it's not great literature, but it's very yeah. entertaining. I mean, to me, this is a popcorn movie. You know, this is a TV show that you find engaging, but nobody's writing 1500 word essays on sure you know i mean heck i would watch this as a lifetime tv movie probably i actually think it'd be more interesting as like a british type series you know where you have like the six episodes at a time kind of or six to ten episodes um, like, I don't think you'd want to try and do a 22-episode TV series, but I think it could be better served than, than by a two-hour a two hour movie. Or, hell, it'd be actually a really good ABC Family candidate. Ah, perfect. ABC Family, uh, give it six six or eight episodes. Done. Um, so let's talk a little bit just about, quickly, I felt like, in term, I mean, yes, the story is entirely from Lizzie's point of view. So, of course, it makes sense that we're going to get to know her best. And since Ella has the conflict of also wanting to have her own boyfriend, you know, she's, of course, going to be the one that gets the second most. But I felt, maybe more than you did, Joe, that Betsy really got left aside. Um, that we really, that Betsy was very underdeveloped and that we really didn't get to know her much at all. We, And it was, in a way, kind of disappointing that you got a little bit more of a glimmer of her near the end of the book, because it was like, I kind of would have been okay if we just never got to know her and it would have just kind of like been, okay, she's just there. Mm-hmm. But when she started to show a little, when you started to be able to have a little bit of interest in her near the end of the book and then the book ends, I'm like, but we were just getting to know Betsy. Um, the author on her website states clearly that she has no intention of writing sequels to her books. Um, which I think is kind of a shame because to me, the fact, you know, a lot of, I mean, trilogies are hot in publishing right now. And 
you have a book about three girls. I mean, to me, it would be interesting if, like, you know, this book, book one, is Lizzie's story. And then book two could be Ella's, and book three could be Betsy's. And, I mean, I'm not saying they would have to recount the same timeline or events. Oh, God, no. No. But, you know, just to kind of see, you know, how this situation affected the three of them differently and you know, how they react to it and how they go on after the revelation, you know, after the secret's out. Um, and I feel like, you know, by the end of this book, Lizzie's story is, is pretty much complete, you know? I mean, in the sense that she seems to be the first one to really want to break away from the current setup. And... She seems to be the one, I mean, and she seems to be the one that's pushing for it and is most active in that decision. And at the end, she seems to have almost kind of made her peace with where it is. I mean, you know, probably years of therapy still, but she seems fairly <laughs> well adjusted with it at the end. Um, whereas, like, I think Ella is going to, I think Ella is going to be the most damaged from this. Betsy seemed very independent and free-spirited. I mean, at the end of the book, she's the one that goes off to the other coast to a boarding school. I mean, she seems very independent. But I think Ella was the one that, I mean, just her personality really seemed to like routine and order. She was the most dependent of them. And Yeah, also the most dependent. And so I think Ella is the one that's going to suffer the most from the three of them having to lead separate lives and from the betrayal of her mother and, you know, all those things. And so I'd like to see how Ella is dealing with this afterwards. I think that would be interesting, but it's not going to happen. I do think it was interesting that, um, am I misremembering? I'm glancing at the end of the book. Um, I am looking through here. I am trying to remember, does Ella go off to college with Liz? Well, ultimately, they all go to college together, don't they? No. Do they? That, wasn't that Do how it ended with... they meet back up in college? Yeah, that, that Allison was going to be sharing a house with the three sisters. Uh, that, oh, uh, yes, yes, so she is. is. She is. Okay. Allison's sharing a quad with them. Uh, you guys are going to have to help me on that one. Quad, four-person suite in dorms? Yeah. Okay. Sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, I shared a room with two guys, and it was, uh, you know, one room. We did none of this sweet business. Um, but I did, have... but uh, I did, I did think it was interesting that Ella um, doesn't seem to have really broken away from her dependence yet at all, as right. much as Liz has. Right. We have no mention of, for instance, of uh, what her separate experience was in her senior year of high school whether she met anybody like Sean, for instance. Right. Joe, uh. I thought it was interesting when, when you said, just kind of along those lines, that you liked that we didn't kind of switch perspectives, that we, we that the book is told entirely in first person and that it's entirely from Lizzie's perspective. Mm -hmm. Whereas I thought that was one of the weaknesses of the book, where I think it would have been more interesting to kind of shift from one sister to another to get both their different perspectives on the stories and to hear their different voices as narrators. So see what I'm saying, I would have liked to have had covered in three different books. So you're saying you would have liked to have seen in this one book. 
Well, I guess with the way the story unfolded, particularly in the last third of the book, you kind of had to pretty much stay with Lizzie for at least a huge chunk of it there. But right. I, I also, Amy, I do also like your idea of as a trilogy and then kind of see each uh, a book sort of from each per, the perspective of each sister. Um, but I just thought it was it was interesting that, you know, we're establishing this premise that there's um, human cloning and then there's these three identical teenage girls or quote unquote identical teenage girls. Um, but that we also do establish that they do have their own individual personalities, but we don't really get to see that within the context of how the story is told. Well, and certainly not like, like, like I say, I mean, I like that it came to a satisfying, con- I mean, I like that it came to a clear conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, they they didn't, there wasn't an ambiguous ending. But at the same time, I would have liked to have seen more aftermath and how it affected each of the three girls differently than what we did get to see. Sure. By the way, in terms of uh, the uh, when they were cloned, I was amused uh, that the dates actually line up. Uh, the mother talks about uh, Dolly at one point. Uh, if, the, if, the, if the sisters were almost 17, uh, Dolly was born 5th of July, 1996. The dates line up pretty much exactly right. Nice, nice touch by Cat Patrick there. If you assume the book is set in like 2013. Right, right. Huh. And it was just published earlier this year, so that timeline would yeah, make sense. Yeah. Right. Dolly's um, on display at the National Museum of Scotland. Okay. <laughs> now, one thing that I found interesting was, um, and okay, here be spoilers. Um, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Uh, I liked that... Uh, the story of the other girl was that wasn't Allison, was it? No, that was the one they found on that uh, their version of a snapshot. Petra, uh, Petra, Petra. That's right, thank you, Petra. Um, the the Petra who turned out to be another clone from the same base as them. Um, you know, I I thought maybe she was going to be. Her her storyline did not turn out the way I expected, and I was pleased with that. So was I. I liked uh, that it was kind of a red herring. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was a good red herring. Um, and in a way, also, it was very sad um, what you find out about Petra and, you know, why she is a red herring and, and maybe not the twist you were expecting her to be. Um, so I really, I really liked that. I thought it, I thought, um, you know, even though this is, like I said, kind of a popcorn premise, I felt like that brought some, the, the, the storyline with Petra did bring some, some sincerity and some, and, you know, some, some depth to, to the book. Right. It tried to be about uh, something a little more than just three sisters. I mean, this is about something that a lot of people consider really abhorrent, the idea of cloning a human being. And it wasn't ignoring that there is a, a actual debate about this. And the, uh, the book, in a way, touches on that and related issues with, uh, with Sean and his mother, where it also talks about, you know, the, that the girls, I think Sean might sort of semi-jokingly mention that they're suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Um, where, oh, they you totally know, are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but I think the the book doesn't necessarily present their situation as 
sick and serious and twisted as it probably is. Well, and I think that's because it's being told from a first-person perspective of Lizzie. You know, and if she is being affected by the Stockholm Syndrome, I mean, it really is to me almost in a way how people that are abused are, where, like, it's, they've just internalized horrible as the norm. And I think Lizzie and Ella and Betsy have all done that. And since we're getting it from Lizzie's first person's perspective, that's why you're, I mean, so in that way, she is a little bit of an unreliable narrator. I'll buy that. Sure. That makes sense. I mean, we're uh, not even sure at the end if, uh, if their mother is telling them the whole truth. Oh, right. I mean, one thing that I also really liked is that even though, yes, there is a romance and the romance is the thing that kind of, you know, is, is the thing that kind of sets the, the, the breakaway in, in motion. Um, I like that it wasn't all about the romance that, you know, thank she, God, she, because that was some fucking terrible writing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Their first yeah. kiss while the waves crashed against <laughs> You know what I kept getting I bugged like by with Sean? Kiss like that? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I just wish Sean would stop fumbling with his fucking iPod. Every other page, it was Sean fumbled with his iPod. <laughs> Fumbling with an iPod is the new and a dog barked. <laughs> well, where I was thinking, Sean fumbled with his zipper. You know, like not jeans zipper, but like the zipper on your jacket. Mm -hmm. Like, don't you remember? Or maybe that was just the books I read. Like, somebody was always having trouble doing or undoing their jacket. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. Anyway, um but no, okay, so seriously, but what I liked about that was that, I mean, when you're writing, you know, this young adult book that's clearly aimed at young women, it would be very easy to make the romance the focus. Um, and instead, I mean, she and Sean, for the most part, after the kind of initial uh, confusion, uh, they get to have a pretty happy and supportive relationship. And so then it's not about, I want to date Sean and mom won't let me. It's about, wait a minute, the reasons mom won't let me are seriously fucked up. And mm -hmm. are systemic, you know, are representative of a systemic fucked upness <laughs> in my life. And, and I liked that, that it was, that the boy was the impetus to the bigger, for the bigger story, as opposed to the other way around. Also valid. Sure. Now, before uh, we get off the subject of the book, I want to talk about one thing that kind of bugged me. Yes. How Deus Ex Machina was Mason themed. Yeah. Uh, and so it was so darn easy to get in contact with him. We just have to look in Mom's address book, and the one number we don't recognize is the guy who handled <laughs> all of our identity papers and whatnot. Okay. Well, I will buy that though, in the sense that for her mother to have the. I mean, because they knew something had gone wrong in Florida. I mean, even though they were too young to kind of fully understand what was going on at the time. And they knew that when they moved, you know, okay, we're now going to have to, you know, don't tell anybody that there's three of you. I mean, for her mother to maintain that, she wouldn't have a lot of contacts or friends. And 
so it's very likely that the fact that he was the only number they didn't recognize would make him a person of interest. Yeah, but he's in her address book. I have an address book. Do you keep all of your illegal contacts in your address book? I keep everybody in that. <laughs> <laughs> also, I have issues with how quickly he put together completely new identities for three uh, 17-year-old American citizens. Well, I mean, I got the sense that Mason does that sort of thing not infrequently. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was my, you know, Mason is like that guy that, you know, it's like, he's the I know a guy guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was my impression of him. Well, I mean, let's just compare it to uh, Randy. I think we're going to hit another spoiler warning. Spoilers! Uh, Breaking Bad. We're not going to say who had to go on the run for, or why, but let's just say it took probably a good couple of weeks to set up the basest identity and then stick them in the middle of nowhere. This is true, of course. That was also for someone who was uh, very high profile. True. That a lot of people would have been looking for. Very true. What I'm just saying is, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, but it's not an afternoon job. Uh, but also, these girls, I mean, you know, they're not. I mean, because they're minors, you know, they're not going to have bank accounts. They're not going to have real estate issues. They're not going to have car insurance. I mean, like, there's so many things that go into an adult identity that you don't have to fool with for a minor. Okay. I'm just saying it was a little stretching of credibility there. I mean, the, 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 to me, the fact that, um, he was so easy to find and to get to, um, well, or just his presence is the deus ex machina that you, that you're talking about. But I don't know. I mean, given what mom had been into, it doesn't surprise me that she would know a guy who could put together. I mean, and it may have even been something that he had, he was prepared for, mm. you know, that these girls could show up at any moment. And so he was just ready if they needed it. Okay. I'm willing to accept that idea because that does make a certain amount of sense. I mean, mom probably would have thought of that. True. Yeah. But back to the whole concept of it being sort of deus ex, deus ex machina, it was also there wasn't really much tension in the last third of the book. Like once, like in the vaguest sense, uh, the mom and uh, Ella and Betsy disappear, and then Lizzie and Sean track them to Colorado. Um, there's not really a lot of tension there. I expected like once, more of a confrontation. Yeah. Yeah. When when Sean and Lizzie caught up with them, than yeah. what we had. Yeah. Um. That that kind of surprised me. Um. I was also, in a way, kind of surprised that there wasn't a another party introduced. I mean, besides the what was the lady's name? The uh, other one, Ellen? the other scientist. Mary. Yeah. I mean, besides her. I mean, uh, she was Maggie, which is another nickname for Elizabeth. Um, yeah, she wasn't. She there needed to be more of a menace besides mom, you know. And she turned out to be kind of a straw man. 
and there wasn't someone else that came in. Like, I mean, if there had been police or there had been, um, you know, some sort of criminal element or something like that to come in to really make it scarier. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I enjoyed it. I liked the idea. I, I like the way that you're playing with clones here. Um, in the sense that, um, you know, it's it to me, it felt like an original premise to work with where you're using clones. Yeah, I'd give it yeah. a, a mild recommendation as well. Well, because there were a lot of books that I found where it's like the twist is that they're clones. Like, something's not right with the children. <laughs> oh, they're clones! <laughs> you know, something's not right with that neighborhood. Oh, they're clones! You know, and uh, I liked this one where you get to know right up front that they're clones, but the fact that they're clones is being hidden from society, but not from the reader. I liked that. So, yeah. yeah. And definitely related to that, one of the things I really liked uh, in the early chapters when uh, Lizzie was preparing herself to go to school and just like sort of in a way researching and studying and preparing for a role that she was actively playing, um, which I think felt very accurate in the general concept of how shitty it can be to actually be a teenager and actually going to school and dealing with crap that you don't want to deal with or something like that, where you're just, you, you, you've got like a shield around you that you've had to kind of rehearse and prepare for. So I, I really like that element of the, the story as well. Well, I also really liked that, I mean, in the end, taken from kind of a long view, what this book becomes about is that teenage experience of, you know, identifying what parts of yourself are really you, what parts you like what parts you don't like, um, gaining independence from your parents, you know, becoming your own person and responsible for your own actions. I mean, you know, all those kinds of things that are both exhilarating and terrifying about a teenager coming into adulthood are, are here in this book, you know, even though they're clones and in some ways made, you know, you're dealing with a metaphor, in the fact of the clones. So I like that. I mean, you know, you've got these three girls who now, who've been living as one person and now they have to figure out how to live as themselves. Well, figuring out how to live as yourself is pretty much, well, I mean, certainly adolescence, if not more the rest of your life. I think you're absolutely right there. So I liked it for that. I mean, like I said, even though there's not a whole lot of depth, I think coming from the writing itself, I think the story lends itself to... Uh, and in being an interpretation of some universal themes. So. And on that note, I think it's time for us to maybe switch over to the movie, but uh, let's get a final thought on Amy. Or I assume you're recommending the novel. Well, like I said, I would recommend it as a fun read. Um, if you're someone that hates young adult novels, this is not going to be the one that converts <laughs> you. Um, because it is written definitely you know, for a teen audience at a teen level. Um, I mean, you know, we've read you, we've all three read some young adult literature recently that, you know, 
if it didn't have the YA and on the spine would pass just fine as regular regular literature, whereas this one wouldn't. Um, I think when I looked it up in the database we use to describe that that helps you identify books, I think it was identified as being like early teen reading. So, you know, it's aimed at like the, you know, 12 to 15 year old set, really. So, I mean, it, if that bothers you, reading reading works that are written at that level, um, this would not be a book you'd enjoy. Uh, I was having this thought a couple of weeks ago when the Carrie remake came out, wondering if Carrie was published in 2013, would that have been published as young adult? Oh, absolutely. That's what I was thinking. And it just seems kind of odd to consider a, a different path where young adult existed in 1975, I think. And uh, where Stephen King uh, starts out as a young adult author. Wow. Well, any, I mean, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I, I, you know, I both, I both, I kind of have a love hate relationship with the YA genre. Um, because on the one hand, it's allowing a lot of really interesting books to get published that fall somewhere in between children's literature and serious grown-up Oprah reads it literature. Um, <laughs> well, considering Oprah literature is basically young adult literature for adults. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, don't let Franzen hear you say that. Um, Whatever, Franzen. The, um, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, YA is sort of a, a second-class stamp. I mean... You know, a lot of the comments that are leveled against genre fiction, you know, of other genres like science fiction, fantasy, mystery, romance, westerns, all those, um, are, are some of the same things that young adults suffers, regardless of whether it fits into one of those of those genres or not. I mean, like this one's clearly a science fiction, but you know, like Codename Verity which we read and discussed a while back is considered young adult, but it doesn't fit into any, I mean, it's not really romance mystery, you know, it's just a straight up story, but I feel like it didn't get kind of the risk. I mean, I feel like young adult keeps you from getting all the respect you deserve. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of like if, if you think about movie ratings versus kind of book, classifications if you will where like a pg movie doesn't have the same doesn't it's not stigmatized the same way that the label young adult would be right it's it's, it's trying to think of young adult in the context of be it language or them, uh, plot developments or thematic content that's kind of appropriate for young people rather than specifically written just for young people but what's interesting about that is that a lot of young adult books in recent years there's been a real trend in young adult books towards very very dark subject matter mm. um you know stuff that i feel like you know maybe you don't want a teenager reading unless it's a teenager that is communicative with parents adults you know other people in their life that mm. can kind of say Let's talk about that. How did that make you feel? You know? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just... Young adult is... I don't understand it. Because it's like a lot of the books in there, I feel like, are not necessarily age-appropriate for con content-wise. 
Um, and some of them, while they may appeal to that age group, they shouldn't only appeal to that age group. So it, it's frustrating, I think, what, what's, what's going on with that label young adult at this point. Hmm. Like to me, this, to me, this book is one that actually earns the young adult designation, right? It's about yeah. young adult characters. It's written at a level that young adults, and if we're talking about young adult, meaning, you know, adolescent, you know, it's written at a level, a reading level that they can understand. It's dealing with themes that are relevant to their immediate situation. I mean, this should, this is textbook young adult. And that's why I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to a lot of adults. Okay. Sorry. That became a, that, I liked it there. That was a tangent. <laughs> oh, Randy, are you going to recommend it? Uh, I wasn't going to. Um, I think, Amy, a lot of what you said has not really changed my personal mind about it, but has kind of just offered in the alternate perspective um, that I think for a young adult reader that I would definitely recommend this book. But as for someone like myself who in no way could be considered a young adult anymore, um, I don't think I would. And most of my uh, quibbles with it just has to do with the not the story itself, but the telling of the story and sort of the the level of the writing and even the plot, which isn't a very – ultimately, it's not really a very sophisticated plot. No. Um, but, I mean, there's definitely stuff to recommend in it, and I do think young adult readers would actually enjoy it a lot more than I did. Okay. Now, moving on, we're going to talk about our movie for the week. Uh, this was Randy's choice this time around. And, Randy, why don't you uh, start us out on the movie? Yeah, so the movie I picked for this podcast was uh, Darren Aronofsky's 2006 film, The Fountain. Uh, now, though the theme of this podcast was cloning and clones, I went a more uh, metaphorical approach to that theme where I was thinking more of the general concept of uh, multiples or copies or things like that rather than like literally talking about clones. Um, so in the fountain, we have it's a sort of sci-fi romance movie where we get stories told in three different uh, time periods. Uh, the first story tells of a Spanish explorer uh, shortly after the quote-unquote New World was uh, discovered, or I should, maybe that's where I should put the quote-unquote discovered by Europeans, uh, where he is looking for. Uh, the tree of life and eternal life that that would bring. The second story uh, involves a scientist who is looking to basically cure cancer um, and possibly lead to eternal life that way. And then in the third story, we see a spaceman who is traveling in a very interesting and unusually designed spaceship at first, we don't know where he's going, but he's going somewhere, and he's got a tree on the spaceship with him. In the general context of the film itself, all three of the, the, the male characters in the movie are played by Hugh Jackman, and opposite him is Rachel Weisz. 
and <clears throat> excuse me, in the the uh, the scene set in approximately 1500, she plays Queen Isabella of Spain. In the scene set in present day, she plays the scientist's wife, and then we sort of see sort of visions of her in the future as well. So that's sort of what how the movie is structured, but what the story is actually about is a bit more complicated than that. And I'm sure we'll get into that uh, as we go. Uh, Joe, I know you had seen this movie before and Amy, I know you hadn't. The reason why I wanted to pick it and have us all watch it was that it's a movie I completely adore. And it's a movie that I don't think gets nearly as much respect and admiration as it deserves. And I just wanted to have a chance to talk about it. So um, what did you guys think of the movie? Amy, since you're the person who hadn't seen it before, uh, why don't we start with you? Okay. I watched this with three other people. I watched it with my housemate, a friend of mine, and my 17-year-old exchange student from Poland. The exchange student, after the movie ended, you know, as the credits were rolling, says, I did not understand it. But I liked it very much. <laughs> <laughs> I think Aronofsky would have loved that reaction. And I have to say that I agreed with him on the first part, not so much the second. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 I have to. Uh, uh, Randy, we're gonna we're gonna disagree on this one because I feel like for me, it ticked a lot of the. It made my pretentious sense tingle my pretentious spidey sense tingle um in that uh, basically i liked the middle story right i liked the story with the doctor and the wife mm-hmm. um i didn't need the conquistador story and the space bubble thing um <laughs> my exchange student has trouble pronouncing certain words and during a lot of the scenes involving future Hugh Jackman, uh, it, during one of them, uh, the student said, I do not think we have taken enough acid for this. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about correcting, correcting him, and I'm like, acid, acid, whatever it is, we did not take enough for this. <laughs> Uh, you know, especially when you've got Hugh floating around in lotus position with swirly things happening behind him. <sighs> I mean, that's it being said, it was gorgeous. Oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, we watched it on, we didn't have a, we didn't have access to a Blu-ray copy, but we did have a DVD which looked pretty good on the HD TV. Yeah, so and that was the same for me. My library system only has one Blu-ray, and it's been out for two weeks. Anyway, it, it looked gorgeous. I mean, it was certainly a feast for the eyes. And since we are talking about Aronofsky, um, I have to this say... the second Aronofsky movie I've made you watch, isn't it, Amy? Yes, it is. And I actually really liked Requiem for a Dream. Um, although I could have done without the... There was one plot line in there that just didn't resonate with me, but you know, oh yeah, I could give a shit what happens to Jared, any in, any incarnation of Jared Alito. Um but um I think I felt a little bit like this like I did about Black Swan, which I saw in the theater in its first run. 
Um, and that's where I kind of felt like that was really pretty. And I loved looking at it. And I would recommend anyone see it just to see it. But I can't say that I liked it as a story. So that's what I thought. What do you think, Joe? See, I like it better than Black Swan. Black Swan I have a problem with in that I think it tries to go somewhere that I'm just not willing to go along with. I feel the whole, is she becoming a monster or is she not, is just played a little too cute. But it, but There's in this, nothing cute about Black Swan. But I'm, I'm Natalie Portman herself. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of the uh, screenwriter trying to play cute with uh, what exactly is happening here, that's a, that, that's what I mean. Mm. Um, and I don't think that occurs here. I think I can see why your pretension uh, meter went off, but I think this movie successfully gets past that for me. I I don't think it entirely works in where it's going. But I'm willing to go along with it, if that makes sense. I mean, like I said, it just kind of... It, it didn't work for me in that, in that, in that sense. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, I like the Conquistador section more than you did. I think that section is kind of fascinating to me and how it ties together to the middle section. Uh, because the Conquistador section is actually a novel being written by Jackman's wife. Well, so I have a question about that. Sure. Um, How did you guys interpret it? Did you... Because, I mean, on the one hand, yes, it's presented as the novel being written by his wife. But on the other hand, was it a novel? Because she talked about going... I mean, or were we supposed to think that it was a nonfiction retelling? Because she uses the very real character of Queen Isabella. Yeah, but the but the historical novel that that she was using like actual historical characters and places and events and things like that, but, but telling a fictional story within that context. Right, and the history in terms of uh, Isabella is completely g- goofy. So I'm quite willing to believe she's writing a she's writing a novel, not telling retelling a historical event. So within the context then of the film, <laughs> the. Conquistador story is fiction. Okay. What's the what's the spaceman story? That's a little more difficult to figure. There are two. Uh, I personally have two battling interpretations of that. Well, let's um, hear them. And I think this when I first saw this. So this movie premiered at the 2006 Venice Film Festival, where it had been uh, long awaited because it had it had been six years since Requiem for a Dream came out. And um, this had sort of a a tortured history in actually trying to get made because for a while there, uh, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett were attached and were actually going to play uh, the characters that Jackman and Vice ended up playing until Pitt pulled out and then the funding fell out. And then Aronofsky kind of reimagined it on a much smaller scale and managed to get the funding, and then made the movie. So there was a lot of anticipation when this movie finally appeared in 2006, and it was not well-received at Venice at all. Uh, About a week after it played at the Venice Film Festival, it played at the Toronto Film Festival, which is where I saw it. Um, I I didn't see its first screening, but I'd heard that 
it wasn't very well received there. Um, but at its its second screening, um, which was much more the uh, the film fans rather than you know, at, at the first screenings at a fest like Toronto, you tend to get a lot of uh, uh, hoity-toity corporate types stuff like that, uh, depending on how the screenings go. And it's very complicated and boring. Um, but at this screening, it was Toronto audiences tend to applaud at everything and they didn't really applaud a lot after the fountain. So it wasn't particularly well received there either. Um, though there were those of us who adored it and were like, uh, singing its praises for like weeks afterwards. And I was one of those people. Um, and friends who I'd went, gone to see it with did not like it at all. It's a movie that I think Lisa Schwartzbaum in EW described it as if you're on its way, something to the effect of if you're on its wavelength, it's hard to shake. That's a, a not a verbatim quote, but it's very close to what she would have said. And I was completely on its wavelength when I saw it and just it floored me. And then I saw it like four or five times in theaters later that fall too. So I was, I was obviously a huge fan of this movie. So having said that, um, my initial interpretation, I've sort of changed after I saw it another couple of times, my final interpretation of the movie, God, that was a long way to get to that point. um, (laughs) Was that the, you will also remember in the, the context of the movie, the book that Izzy is writing, she hasn't finished. And she leaves it up to Tommy, her husband, Hugh Jackman, to actually finish the book. And that's what the future segment is. It's his finishing of the book. Because when they're, when they're at the museum and she points out about um, what the Mayans, what uh, how their underworld was this this nebula Shabalba, um, which was actually a dying star, and that one day was going to explode, and all this stuff. That's sort of what happens in the future section of the movie. So, in the future section of the movie, uh, Tom, who is now bald and, like Amy said, is sitting there in the lotus position, and he's doing Tai Chi against the starry background. And it's if you're like if you're not on its wavelength, you're really going to be rolling your eyes at. <laughs> um, but yep. so he. He and this – he's in this sort of bu- spaceship bubble is on the way to Jabalba. Um, and within the spaceship bubble, he's got a tree. And the tree also ties back into something else that Izzy had said with the Mayan uh, stories of um, when you die and then you plant a tree and you become part of the tree and all this this circle of life mumbo-jumbo. Um, the tree is actually sort of Izzy herself. And so future Tom That's what I taking... said. That's what I said when we first saw it. I was like, she's three, she's three, she's three. <laughs> mm-hmm. Future That's Tom fun is to ta- watch a movie with, but <laughs> <laughs> So future Tom is taking Izzy to Jabalba to, which as it explodes, will kind of recreate her life in all parts of the universe. In In a way, it's sort of very goofy but in a way it's also very romantic um but if you don't interpret that as actually being what happened if you just see that as being sort of the end of the story uh that izzy was writing then it becomes more about the 
futility of, and this is really what I think the movie is about, the futility of looking for eternal life as well as kind of accepting your own mortality. And that's where I go along with it because I think the central message of the movie is you can't cheat death, basically. I mean, it's it's so trite to say that, but sometimes you do have to accept that you can't win at everything and you can move on. I think the, the, the final image of the movie is Jackman, basically, he's used this story that he's written to the ending of his wife's novel to help him to start to move on, to not be so obsessed. And let me say this for Hugh Jackman's uh, performance, by the way. Ob- obsessed and trying, to, uh, and trying to solve death Hugh Jackman in this movie is one of my favorite Hugh Jackman performances in a weird way. I like the, part, the, the, the places he goes to in just being despairing and trying to fix things that he just can't fix. I yeah. almost wish, though, that we could have seen it. Like, I don't need Brad Pitt, but I would have loved to have seen it with Kate Blanchett. No. I mean, no. Oh, I would have. I, I, would I have. love Kate Blanchett, but this like... is wise. No, I would have liked it because I feel like there's something about Kate Blanchett that's harder yes. than, She's than about cool. Rachel Weiss, and I would have liked that. No, Rachel it Weiss is take, full of life. Me, at least it, for me, it would have taken the edge off of some of the hippy dippiness that turned me off. It's funny because, yeah, I mean, I adore Kate Blanchett. I just don't like her in sort of romantic leading lady roles. Like, she's so good as Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator, and she was so good as Bob Dylan in I'm Not There. Um, and she's been great in, of course, any number of other performances, but... And again, I still try to picture her opposite Brad Pitt in this movie. The two times they've played opposite each other, uh, they've had negative chemistry together. Oh, God, let us not. Kate Blanchett and who? And Brad Pitt. Yeah. Oh, no, see, I would have liked to have seen Kate Blanchett and Hugh Jackman. (sighs) I don't want Brad Pitt. And honestly, I mean, I, I usually mean that in any sense of the word. I think Brad Pitt is one of those people who, I, I fully am one of those people who's on the Brad Pitt is better as an interesting supporting actor. Absolutely. As a lead. I, I am 100% on that bandwagon. Um, but like I said, for me, it would just be Kate Blanchett as, you know, it, it, she would be the bitters in a good Manhattan. Have either of you seen something called Stories of Lost Souls? No. No. It's Kate Blanchett and Hugh Jackman. Well, now watch it. The other thing I wanted to say about um, this film, just one other random observation. What the hell, Ethan Soupley? <laughs> I love like, what Ethan... came on screen and I'm like, dude, that's Randy. Yep. Isn't that his name in yeah. Yeah. My, name was, uh, my Name is Earl? Yeah. I'm sorry. I still think of Ethan Suppley as uh, the stereogram guy from Mallrats. Oh, right, or he's that. And I'm just like, how did he get in this really serious movie? And, in fact, it made it jarred me so much to see him in this movie that it actually made me go look to see if Darren Aronofsky was a Scientologist. 
And like, if there was some sort of Scientology networking thing happening that cast him in this film, I mean, <laughs> that's how bizarre his presence was in this film. I looked to Xenu for answers. <laughs> I just have a curiosity. Have you ever seen um, American History X? No. Supley's very good in that. Really? Yeah. Okay. I don't remember him in that because I, when I saw it, I wouldn't have known who he was. Yeah, he's the guy with the video camera. Huh. That's that was about uh, two hundred pounds ago for him. And of course, the other notable actor in a supporting role in this movie, uh, you might have recognized Tio Hector Salamanca. Yes. Well, I didn't, but Bruce did. My friend that was watching it with me. <laughs> And we decided that he would have been a hell of a lot more fun as the monk if he had a little bell. <laughs> like, I have found it. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Uh, I knew. I, I, I never got around to looking up who, what I had seen him in before. Maybe you can remind me. Well, um, Father Avila, the the priest who finds the the hidden uh, pyramid, right. Uh, that was Mark Margolis who played Tio Hector on Breaking Bad. Oh, no way. Yes yeah. way. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's been in every one of Aronofsky's movies. Oh, and amusingly, he was in 1492, Conquest of Paradise. <laughs> well, there you playing go. Francisco de Bobadilla, which is great because in this, he's a Franciscan. <laughs> uh, wow. So the other thing is that while watching this movie, every time they talked about the tree of life, I was like, I wish I was watching that instead. Oh God, no. No. I like <laughs> tree of life. I like parts of the tree of life, but I think it's about an hour too long just to start with. Well, that's the thing. This movie was only like 93 minutes long or something. I was I surprised was actually... at that. In my remembrance, I thought would have sworn it was at least two hours. I swear there was, like, one review we found that said something like, the secret to eternal life is to watch this movie because it feels like time stretches forever. Oh, ouch. I and, think and, it's a little unfair. And let's unfair. say we felt like that in my room, like, in my living room, there was a little bit of, how long did you say this movie was again? I mean, it, it just wasn't working for us. Okay. To me, it's a nice, lean 96 minutes. Yep. Oh, and we also we have a... Oh, we have, oh, oh. Also, the other thing in my the other thing in my living room that we had issues with, the sap had to be white. Really, I was thinking of that too, and I was I chose to think of it more like milk than sure. The yeah, other no, <laughs> sticky that's... white substance. Yeah, it was a little. Uh... I've dealt with milk, and I've dealt with other substances. <laughs> it ain't milk. Uh... Speaking of fluids, actually, and this is not a uh, this is not a rude. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I'm good. <laughs> there, there is there is a point to this transition. You were talking about the uh, weird spacescape that he's going towards, Amy, uh, when he's flying into the nebula. Which, by the way, is the Orion Nebula. I was, I wasn't. Go ahead. Yeah, the stuff that he's doing Tai Chi against, and there's these weird spacescapes uh, going past him. Uh, yeah. Those are not. Uh, they are they're modified, but it's not particularly CGI heavy effects. That is macro photography of uh, things like cells, and it's it's really beautiful. It's a guy named. Uh... But okay, wait a minute. Young Einstein ends with footage of an atom being split, and nobody claims that that makes Young Einstein a great film. Well, I'm not claiming it makes it a great film. I'm just saying it's interesting that. Uh... 
uh, that these effects are using basically the stuff of life. I mean, I'd rather see the macro photography of the atom being split at the end of Young <laughs> Einstein than see this movie again. Okay. And by the way, the lotus position into the uh, center of the nebula thing, that was a little over my level of, my, we are just ripping off the religious iconography here, aren't we? Oh, I mean, totally. Yeah. Which which made me a little bit uncomfortable in some ways. In the sense of like, hey, let's make a white dude look like an Indian god. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it wasn't like they were yellow-facing him. It was just, he was just bald. Well, they yellow-faced the whole damn screen. Well, that's because of the light from the nebula. Yeah. Nice loophole. Yes. <laughs> funny just uh bringing up amy you mentioned uh, tree of life and this is definitely a movie i thought of while i slogged through that movie a couple of years ago um just thinking about kind of how the movies i like and how i like to watch movies and, and that sort of general thing one thing i really like about the way aronofsky makes movies and particularly certain aspects of this movie, because he's telling a series of many parallel stories that he'll often use very similar techniques or similar shots or um, things in one story that comment on things in another story that just kind of, for me, really enhance the story that's being told. And thinking back to Ebert's line of it's not what a movie's about, it's how it's about it. And I just, I really dig the way that Aronofsky makes movies. Um, and I know not everyone does. And I know some people really like Terrence Malick as a director. And I find current Terrence Malick to be almost unwatchable. Um, so what's your take on Badland? I have that sitting on the DVR. I have not watched it. Okay. I, I, it's on my list. It has been on my list of things to see for quite some time because it's, you know, considered an American classic and, you know, people will acknowledge that Malik now is not the same Malik of 30 years ago. So I really should give it a try. Sure. And you know what? I'm, I'm not saying that I don't like tree of life. I, I think it's a decent movie and I, there's a lot that I like in it. I just think it, uh, it's a slog at times. See, I have to say, I wonder if there is sort of a, 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 I wonder how much the three of us in this discussion are representing perhaps a typical Venn diagram of, do you like the fountain or do you like Tree of Life? You know, uh, can those movies appeal to one person equally? Interesting. I would just have to say I, I I probably like The Fountain more than Tree of Life. I mean, I'd like to see – maybe that's something we should – you know, do we actually have listeners? If we actually have listeners, that's something I'd like to hear them chime in on. Yes, if you've seen uh, both Tree of Life and The Fountain, what is your take on the Venn diagram there? Because, um, I, I mean, I have to admit I was just enchanted by Tree of Life. I mean, like jaw hanging open – hand reaching towards the screen because I wanted to just touch it um, kind of response to it. I mean, just like this really visceral response at every level to Tree of Life. Even during the Sean not... Penn sections? During some parts of the Sean Penn sections. Not all of them, but some. Um, but like the part that seemed to alienate a lot of people about Tree of Life, which was the dinosaur section and all of that. 
I loved that. You know, people that were like, what's that about? Why is there dinosaurs? If I wanted dinosaurs, I'd watch Barney. You know, I, it worked for me. I mean, just not to get too much on the screen on that film, but it's just like, I feel like some of the ways that Randy is describing his reaction to this film are some of the ways that I, you know, sort of that gut reaction are some of the ways that I responded to Tree of Life as opposed to this film. And they really don't have anything in common except for the fact that they both discuss. Well, one's called Tree of Life and the other one discusses <laughs> the Tree of Life. And, I mean, has, a tr- really, and has a Tree of Life. I mean, I, mean, other than, I mean, you know, there's not really anything to connect the two other than, other than that phrase. And by the way, Tree of Life is a great example of what you said earlier, and I totally agree with you on uh, Brad Pitt, uh, character actor. Yeah. Yeah. Really like him in that movie, in that movie a lot. Well, and I mean, in the Ocean's Eleven movies. Oh, yeah. In, yeah. in 12 think, Monkeys. Um, yeah. The big difference with Pitt for me is Brad Pitt actor versus Brad Pitt movie star. Yes. I really like Brad Pitt movie star. Like in the Oceans movies and Moneyball and stuff like that, and uh, Trio uh, Twelve Monkeys is a different case because he's not really movie star there because he's so uh, off his meds. Uh, but it, he's fantastic there too. But I, I will admit to, to he runs hot and cold for me. Okay, so we have we have gone wildly off topic. Let's bring it back <laughs> around to the fountain. Any. Kind of, I mean, and I could see, you know, when I asked you guys, does this have clones in it? And I see that, so to bring it back to the theme, it's not clones, but I see what you mean about doubles and doppelgangers and and things like that. And Yeah, both Tomas and uh, Tommy, to use the terms from the Wikipedia page, they're both representations of Tom in their own ways. Yeah. Well, absolutely, and or, or a descendant I, if you want I to go. Here through. it is, right? I could believe Kate Blanchett as a tree more than I could Rachel Weisz. <laughs> so Amy wasn't that big on the fountain. Uh, Randy is uh, probably much more positive than I am. I am giving it a uh, fairly decent. Uh, yeah, go and watch it. I think it's a quite good movie, and it's uh, nice and lean, uh, not too long. So. Since we're done with the movie for the week, uh, let's talk about what we're going to be discussing next time around. And uh, the topic was chosen by Randy, correct? Amy. Amy, correct, chose this one. Excuse me. Amy, why don't you tell us about it? Okay. I I like to make things complicated. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. (laughs) And boy, folks, you're going to see that in a second. Perhaps this explains why I'm still single. Let's not dwell on it. Um, what I asked for was a May-December romance, but I wanted to avoid the most common depiction of a May-December romance, which is an older man and a younger woman. So I asked for a May-December romance that just wasn't that. It could be older man, older man, younger man, older woman, younger woman, older woman, younger man. Any of those three, fine. Uh, the other requirement I had was nothing that could be considered in any way pedophilia, pederast, nothing involving minors. Um, you know, that's a, to me, that's a different thing than May, December. Um, you know, to me, May, December is, uh, just talking about an age difference, not talking about anything that's morally dubious or <laughs> wrong. Um, 
so those were my so I wanted May December, but not Mr. December and Miss May. So what'd you guys come up with for me? Alrighty, what I chose, and I had the movie this time around. I chose, and I'm really hoping that I looked at this correctly, and neither of you have seen this because I, I'm really interested to see what you say about it. I chose The Mother from 2003. This is a movie starring Anne Reed and Daniel Craig. British movie from... Never the, heard of it. I, not a lot of people have, but I I love this movie. I think it's a fantastic movie involving a May-December romance that's really interesting in its permutations of what goes on. And What's it, it called? The Mother. The Mother. 2003, right. directed by Roger Mitchell, and that's M-I-C-H-E-L-L. No T in there. Okay. I have not seen it. I don't even think I've heard of it. Yeah, it got a what? very, very small uh, release over here. We'll give it a go. Yeah, I kind of hope you like it. Anne Reed, I think, is fantastic in it. And it's uh, got Daniel Craig pre, uh, pre-Bond. Uh, might might be pre-Layer Cake. Might be around the same time. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It has Stephen McIntosh in it, who is in one of my favorite little undiscovered movies um called different for girls um which i will find a way to make you guys watch that at some point uh, <laughs> I, I i love i love that film love it to pieces and he is so good and he was also he also had a brief role in luther i'm looking at his oh yes him yeah. he was in the first season of luther oh no I'm, i've never seen luther uh you'll laugh at where i recognize him from what? He plays Scrooge's nephew Fred in the Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> All right. He, All right. So, Randy, what did you pick for? He's me? got a great distinctive look in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, he has I... a more distinctive look and different for girls, I can almost guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> Is he a ginger in that as well? Sure. Okay. All right. Randy, you got Randy. the book. Yeah, so I did a bunch of looking for a book. I couldn't think think of anything initially that I had read that neither of you had that would really comfortably fit this um, that I was really interested in, in reading again. So I was thinking, well, I did read Death in Venice back in university, but I don't really want to dig that out. I don't even think I still have a copy. Um, so, And as my mind kept trying to think of different ideas for this topic, I kept thinking of movies instead of books, which fucking frustrated me to no end because I'm like, right, I have to find a book, not a movie. And I had like six different uh, movies that would have fit perfectly. And most of them are actually based on books. Um, and then I know we had talked about a couple of those potential topics. And then fortunately, Amy, you sent me a link to a great article that listed uh, various May, December romances and something in there jumped out at me and that became the pick for the book for the next podcast. And that is The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith, which I'm super excited about reading. I don't really know much about it apart from this brief two-sentence uh, description, but it's Patricia Highsmith um, of Talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train. Um, and this is a very well-regarded book. Um, briefly, uh, The Price of Salt tells the riveting story of Therese Bellevette, a stage designer trapped in a department store day job whose salvation arrives one day in the form of Carol Aird, an alluring suburban housewife in the throes of a divorce. 
They meet, or sorry, they fall in love and set out across the United States, pursued by a private investigator, which just sounds fun. <laughs> well, I've never, I've never read any Highsmith, so I'll be happy to be able to not have to say that after this. And I wasn't even aware yes, of this book. I've only been aware of her, you know, with the Ripley. Yeah, this was when it was first published back in the 50s. Uh, it was actually written or it was published under an alias. And because of the whole perception and actual legal consequences and stuff like that for being a lesbian. Um, and I guess this is also one of the first novels or possibly like the first novel to actually depict um, not the traditional tragic ending for a lesbian. Um, Spoiler! So I think I'm going to have to read up on like my history of queer literature as well in the next two weeks before, before we talk about this. Uh, also published oh, no, under I, the name Carol. I have a question. Highsmith herself was lesbian, yes? No. Complicated? I don't know. Uh, for some reason, I remember it as being more complicated than just a binary designation. Okay. And there's also a film adaptation of this in the works directed by Todd Haynes. Starring Kate Blanchett. <gasps> so. ah. Todd Haynes. I yeah. am there. My butt is in the seat. It all <laughs> comes around. I love Todd Haynes. I'm trying to think if I've ever actually seen a Todd Haynes movie. Um, uh, Far from Heaven? I'm not there. If you, haven't, if you haven't, Safe is phenomenal. Yes, it is. Um, I believe I saw Safe like 20 years ago. Um, he also did um, Far from Heaven. Uh, is that the one uh, that says that's a Cirque uh, yes. riff? Okay, yes. love it. Oh, Velvet Gold. Also, I've also seen uh, Velvet Goldmine. He also did Velvet Goldmine, which, uh, which I don't love as much as Far From Heaven, but I think it's quite good. I love Velvet Goldmine. Velvet Goldmine is Citizen Kane with disco glitter. How can you not love it? Oh, he did that uh, miniseries of Mildred's Pierce that I haven't seen yet. That's been on our PVR for like three years now, and I don't know if I'll ever actually watch it. <laughs> I also, in college, I had a film professor who had a bootleg copy of his Karen Carpenter Superstar story. Superstar? That is one of the greatest films I have ever seen. It was a lot of fun. And yeah. uh, so I, I have a lot, I have great admiration for Todd Haynes. And so I will read this book now thinking what he will do with it. Alrighty. Well, look, looks like we've got that all set for two weeks from now. We'll be watching The Mother from 2003. We'll be reading The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith. So, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, you can find us on the web at tryitandlikeit.blogspot.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joseph Finn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-F-I-N-N. Amy, where can people find you? Amy Watts on Twitter. Randy? You can find me on Twitter at Randois, R-A-N-D-O-I-S. And if you would be so kind as to review us on iTunes, I'm not sure what it does, but reviews are always nice, including all those nice five-star ratings. So we'll be back in two weeks with The Mother and the Price of Salt. Thanks for listening. 